Welcome to Have You Seen This, the world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten visual media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Welcome to Have You Seen This? I'm Jennifer Albright. And I'm Tim Heiderich. I've got nothing to say tonight, so I'm going to kick it over to Tim. Tim, what are we talking about today? God, your voice, Jen, every time on this episode, it's like breaking glass. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of <laughs> that was the UK's smooth. Winter of Discontent. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, uh, 40 years ago, yes. Um, yeah, when, when was I was a young a lad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you were like one, and I think when the mess started, I wasn't even born. But um, when did yeah yeah um, we're talking? When did the trouble start? Uh, like well, the seeds were sown like in like nineteen eighteen or so. Okay, well, we've got kind of a uh, punk new wave uh, brick pop eighties uh, movie to discuss. Uh, which is set against a backdrop of the uh, uh, sort of Thatcher-era uh, Britain. Uh, Winter of Discontent uh, gets thrown around a lot. There's a lot of um, heady social issues uh, backing backing this movie up. So that really sets the, the time and place and the tone for uh, Breaking Glass. Oh, did you just intro the movie? Because I missed like the first 75% of what you said, but I'll assume it was yes. good. Um, yeah, yes. we are talking about Breaking Glass and uh, a little bit of the cultural context behind it. Do we want to talk about the winter of discontent first? Yeah. Um, uh, why don't you uh, start and then I'll nod approvingly. I can't see you nodding, Tim. We're not on video. Yeah, you can hear me nodding, though. I'm a very vociferous nodder. <laughs> I can I can hear the ball bearings rolling around when you do it. <laughs> um, well, you can hear me drumming the table. I'm sure you can hear me nodding. Before we get into it, can I just mention that this movie was actually produced by Dodie Fayed? Uh, one of us was going to have to, because I noticed that immediately in the credits. Executive produced Dodie Fayed, uh, second husband of the uh, late lamented Princess Di. Not, not second husband. They were never married. Paramour, but they still died together. Paramour. Oh, okay. Well, like star-crossed lovers, huh? Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and um, I think his family owned, uh, what's the name of the store in London? The big store. Harrods. Lloyd's of London. <laughs> uh, Madame Tussauds, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they owned Harrods, so that explains why he had money to sink into a scrappy little film about a rock star and it is a scrappy film that is the the overarching theme that i get of it is that it is uh desperate people in desperate times trying to have a go of it yeah and the thing that really comes through about it is how dire the times were and that's where the winter of discontent comes in yeah which i think you're going to describe yeah um yeah, yeah, because it's just like everyone in it is like, uh, just like poor and harassed and on edge, and 
like everything is just like really beaten down and ugly. It's, it's all people living in squats. Yeah. And trying to um you know like for example in Phil Daniels character like trying to blag their way to some kind of success or in the case of Hazel O'Connor's character genuinely wanting to have something to say and yeah not wanting to compromise herself or sell out in order to do it right but yeah him him being uh danny the uh, uh apparent protagonist of this movie he's the <laughs> first and last person that we deal with that's true i guess he kind of bookends it yeah but i mean it, it's weird because you would think that the movie is primarily about uh uh uh, Kate, the singer-songwriter, um, but it's in a weird way. It's kind of uh, her manager's movie. I, I want to make that point. Yeah, yeah, you could make that argument. Yeah. I think. Would you like to make that argument, yeah. or did you just? Yeah, I, I, I kind of <laughs> did. I mean, yeah, like it'll it'll come come through, you know, as things go on. But yeah, it is um, uh, Danny who's trying to. You know, fast talk his way into a successful career as a music manager, and uh, Kate, who is a you know who is an artiste, uh, who is a, a singer songwriter, um, and uh, yeah, is is trying to act as a cultural commentator, even if you know the it, in her limited means. You know, she's doing what she can. Yeah, and the idea of not being ground under by the machine or not selling out really comes through. Um, but this yeah, was a time that's really her, her central theme. Exactly. This was a time when things were really desperate in the UK. And I will apologize in advance to the audience because the problem is, is that I am extremely stupid and British politics are very opaque to me. So you're not going to get a very deep dive into the winter of discontent of 1978 and 79, which was occurring as the movie was being shot. This movie came out in 1980. But I will do my best. I will give you the simplified version, which is that at the time, uh, there was a labor government that wanted to limit inf inflation. So they decided that they wanted to cap pay raises for the labor force, which the trade unions didn't like. Um, and the way that this turned out is that there were massive work stoppages across Britain not just uh, at the Ford plant, as which kind of kicked things off, but also there were garbage collectors who went on strike, lorry drivers, that's trucks to you in the States, um, even grave diggers. And the images of the bodies not getting buried and rats running around in the garbage that was piling up were exploited very deliberately by the conservative media at the time. Um, there is kind of a good rundown on the winner of discontent, um, from a, uh, BBC series called Secret History that's on YouTube. If you type in winner of discontent, you'll find it on YouTube. It's like the third result. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I love not linking to stuff, just making people <laughs> search for it. But you know, if you're that, yeah, the gravedigger thing is, uh, is name checked, uh, in 24 hour party people. So yeah, it's all... Uh, of a time yeah and in that documentary that i just mentioned there's a guy from the daily express which is known as a conservative paper saying flat out yeah we pulled every dirty trick in the book to get rid of callaghan who was the labor prime minister and the labor party um and the which is kind of the thing in british tabloids 
Like calling calling a British tabloid like <laughs> or a British newspaper like a conservative muckraking uh, you know rag is is basically redundant. And then the American press is like really bad, but the British press is something else entirely, which is something that we've well, they, actually yeah. talked about on the show when we um, when a friend of the show Mike Rosen came on to discuss Jonathan King. Um, the British press is fucking disgusting, and so suffice to say, they were happy to throw working people under the bus to get what they wanted or under the lorry, I guess maybe you could say. Um, yeah, except the lorry wasn't being driven because the driver had gone on strike. <laughs> they just kind of lay down under they it. laid them in front, yeah. <laughs> long, long story short, this ultimately led to Margaret Thatcher being elected prime minister. And we all know how that turned out. Yeah, and England never had any problems thereafter. And it is <laughs> what a also, shitty country. Uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what what a shitty part of no longer Europe. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, that's another thing too. Uh, you know, it gets a brief nod in uh, 24 Hour Party People again because um, it was uh, uh, you know, uh, Tony Wilson, you know, naming the company Factory Records because. You know, he looks around and he just sees factory closing, factory closing. Well, how about factory opening? So, hey, yeah. So that was you know a reaction to the times, and yeah, that that thread is um, woven throughout the movie where you know like they'll um, they're like they want to hop a train, but the guy's like you know yeah this is the eleven forty train to you know uh, you know, Cox Hall or whatever, but, <laughs> Codswallop uh, yeah, or whatever the fuck yeah Codswallop yeah. Um, I like how yeah, at, the, but, at the beginning of the movie, Kate is on a train which is going to, are you ready for this, Cock Fosters. Hey, all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, the, the guy who tells them that the uh, train people have gone on strike is Jim Broadbent in a very early appearance. He's ah. instantly recognizable too. Like when, as soon as he started talking, you can't even see his face entirely. I was like, "Oh, it's fucking Jim Broadbent." <laughs> yeah, and the sound engineer is a uh, British character actor as well, although the name escapes me. I'm sure you can see him in like you know two or three Edgar Wright movies. The sound engineer, which guy? Uh the the fat guy who they have uh, problems with. Oh, the one when they, when they first record their demo or whatever, and then the drummer yeah. starts like ripping stuff out of the console. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't recognize him, but maybe um, sharp-eyed listeners will. Yeah, well, I mean, I I apparently went so far as to recognize him, but not bother to look up who he is. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's and yeah, so there are um, there's civil unrest. Uh, Nazis make a lot of appearance in these, or I guess um, skinheads. Probably not. Nazis proper. Uh, it does, uh, you know, doesn't matter. Shilling for Weedabix as they do. <laughs> <laughs> they came storming into that outdoor music festival, going, "If you know what's good for you, Weedabix." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be better than Steve. Uh, that yeah. Uh, <laughs> Imagine yeah. if yeah, the skinheads yeah. in England were just like really super into grains. Instead of Hitler, mm-hmm. and it, I don't know. <laughs> that would, that would be pretty wild. You'd have a fascist Weedabix party, <laughs> um, and I mean, you can't have a party without Weedabix. Anyway. Is it just me, or is this movie, in spite of being made in a foreign country forty years ago, still kind of relevant today? Because 
I suppose. One recurring motif is the sound of the radio and the announcer giving unemployment statistics and then announcing Mm -hmm. the rise up the charts of the disco record that uh, Danny is trying to get to go up the charts by illicit means. I don't know if it's illicit. I mean, it's certainly um, creative. Like Danny, I mean, he's uh, he's a a low rent, uh, you know, sort of minor character in, you know, music uh, promotion and in that he isn't even anyone's manager. He's just going around and doing like legwork for other people who are are trying to push their uh, music acts by um, selectively buying up records to be like, oh, this one's charting. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's going up. Yeah, like the he's he's doing the legwork of um, uh, like astroturfing mm-hmm. basically by by having the record company buy their acts own albums. Um, so you know it's it's duplicitous and you know it's appropriate for the time because you know who you know is buying records at a time when you know people are on strike and um, fighting with Nazis and being on the dole and just being just living just a generally shitty awful existence in um in the united kingdom yeah there really aren't any beautiful sweeping vistas in this movie but i mean that's if you've been to england that's just kind of what it looks like (laughs) yeah it's just a just an ugly ugly movie yeah so it really captures the time like the the context of the movie is really significant just because it it gives you a window into that period of time that seems really raw and authentic. Yeah, and I like a movie that feels lived in because so many movies give you a very kind of plastic or artificial appearance of people's lives. You mean like it's all part of a machine, man? <laughs> and like it's just, like this world is bullshit. Wow, it's just like Kate was saying in her music about how we were all programs. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, like how the theme is 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 very important, and the context is really significant <laughs> about you know what the social um, uh, sort of strife was at the time in the UK, and the um, uh, music is really significant, and what you know Kate's lyrics in the in the movie are are about is is really important. Um, I feel like the overall arc of the movie is kind of lost in all that. Mm-hmm. Because if we go to the um, meeting of um, Danny and Kate when they first meet, Danny's you know trying to fast talk his way into the meeting, and Kate is going around putting up flyers for her band, and he's like, you know, hey, yeah, well, you know, you're a musician here, you know, sing me something, and she's like, no, I don't want to, and she gives him basically like her um, uh, her executive summary, like her philosophy, she lays that out, and then he's very proactive, and boom, he's kind of her manager. Mm-hmm. And he does manager stuff, and then they play gigs, and he helps promote them, and then you know they gradually become more popular. Meanwhile, all the other like social strife stuff happens on in the background. It's it's the context and the background that is the thing that I notice most of all in this. Like the like they do auditions a lot. You know, most of the musicians are crap, which I'm sure is an experience that anyone's had to audition bandmates has gone through um you know they get a a uh, onerous record deal um after having to bend the air of some you know really disinterested uh you know djs 
and you know they put in the legwork and they have to you know kind of bust some heads and you know really struggle for it but then you know things kind of tend to work out well because there is um and there is work that they put in but there are also dirty tricks that are pulled along the way like danny blackmailing a record company executive into actually getting somebody to come to their gig so it's a little bit of a mix um yeah but also i think you kind of hit on one thing about the movie which is that the arc or story or whatever you want to call it is just like actually not that interesting because right, it, it, it is really so isn't. threadbare like yeah it's that's been a done good word for it a million times like the rise of a starry-eyed youngster who then becomes disillusioned um and I don't even think that the descent into madness is really uncommon either. So, because she right. does end up in in a mental hospital. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, the story is really threadbare in that it's like the movie that you're watching is a vehicle for the music or for the like message behind it. Which I mean, those both have merit, but it's also mm-hmm. you know the movie itself is kind of like. You know, not that engaging. I mean, it's maybe better to like the the music behind the movie is more interesting than the movie itself because the music is actually saying something. And the music is pretty good, like you know, especially if you like new wave. Um, it might be yeah, a little does... bit one dimensional, just because like her vocals don't change very much. Yeah, it's got you know, kind of a Sex Pistols staccato mm-hmm. to it. Um, you know, she does. Uh, you know, she denies in the movie that it's it's punk. She says it's more new wave, and maybe it is, but it does have a real punk energy to it. Although it does kind of, you know, ironically drift into like a glam prog kind of theatrics towards the end. Yeah, when they start not selling punk. her more. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, isn't that always the way? You know that you stop being DIY and you start selling out. I don't, uh, yeah, because that is kind of the, uh, like, the second act, um, you know, low point of, you know, people, like, because she goes on a radio show and people are saying, like, oh, it seems like you sold out. You know, a lot of people are saying that you sold out. She goes to a signing and people are accusing her of selling out. And I'm like, "Uh, when did she sell out? Like, how did she change so drastically? I mean, she might have, you know, been able to enjoy some of her success, but, like, her music was still the same. And she didn't, like, turn her back on any of her initial... Uh, principles she became successful that's not selling out yeah i mean i think particularly at the time it would have been looked at very much as as selling out um man i guess i mean she's uh got a a uh, welcome uh, addition to the band uh saxophonist played by jonathan price who's great in a small role because oh yeah he's wonderful. just like yeah, you're just like, oh, hey, there's there's Johnny Price. Does he do anything? Well, he's kind of deaf. Like, well, it's he's not a really deaf a junkie. Char- <laughs> yeah, that's not really a character trait. Yeah, yeah, they allude to him. Uh, you know, Danny is like, yeah, he's probably, you know, he probably shoots up. And then later on, like much later in the movie, um, like you know, people are giving him uh, you know, grief over like you know playing keyboard with the stash. But like you know, it isn't anything like it's it's not train spotting. You know, it isn't, um, uh, you know, it's not, it's not anyone you like ODing on a toilet or anything. Like he seems to have a, a pretty even keel dis- despite, you know, b- despite being a heroin addict. Well, 
I think that the point is that he is a good and authentic person as opposed to other people in her band who seem mostly concerned with getting more success and more drugs. You know, like her bass player and guitarists are just kind of, they just kind of want to party. They don't give a fuck. You know, they like throw his stash like out the window when they're teasing him. Kate doesn't like that. I think he's great in like a small part with a handful of lines. He actually gives the impression of like a fully realized human being with very little. You know, he could have been a stereotypical tragic screen junkie, but he wasn't. He was a person. Like, uh, and the depiction of a person who is an addict and a depiction that's not dehumanizing or pathetic is honestly kind of rare to see in a lot of media. So he's just, he's a, uh, he's an addict who's like got his act together. I don't know what to make of that. I think that the impression of people who are addicted a lot of the time is that it's this very media driven caricature of them as just like complete fuck ups and sad and vomiting on themselves and stuff like that. And, you know, people struggling with addiction can often live a life without the people around them being aware of their addiction. They can be like functional to a degree. It's just that they need, you know, they need the drug to do it. And that's kind of my impression of, of Price's character. You know, he's like a down and out musician who's addicted to heroin, but he's still a person. That's quite a reach because you could. Oh, you think all my points are a reach. Well, this one especially, um, because you could leave that part out and he's no less a uh, fully realized background character. I mean, if there's... Not really. It's it's similar to... It's like Kate selling out. It's like, we we see that you're a a degenerate, dependent heroin junkie, but, you know, we're told that, but we don't see it. Um, We're told that Kate is a sellout, but we don't see it. These are sort of things that, like, they're, they're well, I don't plot understand. threads that could lead somewhere but don't. I don't understand, and, you know, I'm not defending the arc of the film because, like, I, I do find it very cliche, but you say that we don't see the results of her selling out, but she becomes more and more miserable as the last part of the movie progresses, uh, which eventually leads to her breaking down completely. I mean, that's she was- what you're talking about. That wasn't from selling out, and she's miserable in the beginning of the film. Like, she's miserable, like, all of her songs are about how awful everything is. Then her songs continue to be about how awful everything is. Like, she, does, she doesn't turn around and, like, she doesn't do, like, a Lana Del Rey and do, like, you know, Lust for Life or something. Hmm. Like, she, she doesn't, like, completely change her image. Like, she just does her original image better. Like, her whole point is, like you know, society is fake and it's 1984 and circuit boards and machines and computers, but, but like, that never changes at any point. I mean, I get that it's ironic that, like, in her final performance, like, she's dressed up like Tron and it looks very electronic and very, you know, sort of robotic, but, like, isn't that just her expressing her initial point more, like, eloquently? Like, she, she just has more, um more resources to make the same point she's making before. That's not selling out. Mm, I think this episode's going to be a bust. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I mean, 
Because <laughs> there is. I mean, if you're if like... you're gonna de- if you're gonna defend uh, the predatory record producer and the record company, like I don't know if we're gonna be able to put this one over. <laughs> I, how how am I defending like the? I mean, I you know I just kind of like. Uh, you know, rub my temples when um the when Danny like the manager is like this contract is shit like wh- you can't possibly do this and then she's like yeah just go for it whatever and I'm like okay like I don't think that's a good decision on her part mm. and 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 yeah like it does mirror some of um well is know, she like, making Ian a Curtis's? bad decision or is she getting the resources to better express herself as like you just said I don't understand. Well, she, she because you make it makes... sa- you make it sound like like oh it's not bad to get a record contract but then you say that getting the record contract is bad. No, I'm saying it's no, it isn't bad to make a record contract, but it is bad if you're like oh if your manager is saying don't take this record contract, it's a really shitty deal, and she's like oh just take the contract. I'm like okay then, like you do you. Well, I but think... I mean it isn't it isn't like she's destroyed from like without. The the point that I do want to make though is that this does you know tying it back to twenty four hour party people and you know Ian Curtis in particular you know uh, I was reading the the book about them um, what is it uh, was it the searing light and everything else I forget the book has a long name um, it is the searing light the sun and everything else which is an oral history of Factory Records uh, and and Joy Division around the time um, and. One of the things they talked about is that uh, Joy Division, even when you know, Ian Curtis was kind of unwell, they just kept touring because they were like, they're like 25 or something. And they're, and they're like, yeah, you know, we need to get paid, need to go on tour, got to, you know, make this band thing happen. And then um, you know, after the fact, like you know, years and years later, Bernard, uh, Bernard Sumner, I guess you'd call him, you know, the, the lead of New Order at this point. In hindsight, he's like, "Why didn't we just take a break? Mm-hmm. Like, th- we didn't, we didn't need to play like you know three shows in two days. Like, we could have just like taken a couple weeks off and then you know let Ian get better, and you know maybe find some way around it." But he's like, "I don't know. We just kind of kept doing it, and and sounds like people the in t- their twenties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I don't know why it seems so important that we just kept doing it, but mm-hmm. we did, and that, and you know, they kind of paid for it." That paragraph was really deep and meaningful. This movie, not so much. Right. Well, um, I uh, let me clarify because I don't want to make it seem as though I'm arguing that the movie is either incredibly nuanced or even that interesting in terms of its narrative arc. I, um, yeah, I think we can agree. I on want that. to. I what I want to understand better is your point of view about her, uh, the question of Kate selling out or not, because, I mean, I think that the movie makes it thuddingly obvious that she has sold out, that she has betrayed her own principles, and that it was a bad decision. And also that the record company people are very bad indeed. Um, And... I don't know if the text <laughs> really supports my saying this, but this is this is what I come to like based on my own thinking about the film. You know, this is my own reading. Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah, um, like the the movie itself doesn't it, have a lot to say. Right, right. I'm getting to that. So, based yeah. on 
my own personal reading of the film is that at the beginning, you have people, artists, who are justifiably angry about being exploited, like not being paid for their labor. You know, like Danny is has to like right. scream. Yeah, twice. At a, yeah, he gets yeah. shafted. Yeah, he has to scream at a club owner to get like 30 pounds, which is nothing. Um, the record company people like won't listen to them, aren't interested in them at all until they can exploit them. Um, and then when you have their rise to success, um, and this is where the selling out uh, point comes, is you have them selling a kind of artificial product that maybe isn't Kate in essence. And, you know, that's presented as a bad thing. Especially, And one thing that I did notice is that right at the beginning of the movie, when she first meets Danny, when she's talking about, you know, he wants to hear her sing and he wants to hear some of her lyrics and they have kind of a back and forth. And then she throws in, well, I'm, I'm working on some robot movements, which go along with the lyrics that she's written about people being programs or part of the machine, like, kind of a really heavy, oppressive idea of people being exploited. And then by the end of the movie, she's turned into a robot by the record company. So I think that the movie, as written and directed or whatever, has this kind of simplistic view of Kate selling out. You know, like, yes, she has betrayed her roots. Like, yes, she has become a product. She's become a program. She's become a robot. That's the, that's kind of the, that's what the text looks like to me. I think that if you watch it, you can certainly, and, you know, it does have like a, a proletarian feel. Like, you know, don't get me wrong about like the politics of the movie. Like, it is very much sympathetic towards the people who are struggling. And, you know, you can have a reading which, you know, derives that um, because I think that really it th this is a movie very much on the on the side of the working class, basically. Um, I just don't think that it's a particularly well, it's about deep working film. class people, right? And you know, even the um, the the voices are very important as well. The accents, um, the way that. For example, Kate and Danny speak. Those are very working class accents. The right, the record company. Yeah, people, that really comes speak across. Speak like this, you know, or like John Finch, who plays the really predatory, like black leather. I know kung fu record producer who sweeps in, like <laughs> very menacing. <laughs> All right, if you say so. Well, what do you disagree with? Well, all of it. I mean, she's continuing to make move make music about the same themes only she's reaching a wider audience and any um any uh shortcomings that she gets are all self-inflicted like any like even just but her talking to, her talking to danny and she's like oh i don't want a manager and then even when danny's like hey i got you a contract like oh i don't want a contract and it's just like well then why are you doing these things like well it is true that she is naive no, it's just but, it's not. I wouldn't even say it's naivete. Like, if you don't want the thing, why are you doing the thing? Well, like, but she wants to do it on her terms, I think is the point. And she doesn't do that once. She um, didn't want a manager, and then Danny's her manager. She didn't want a contract, and she's got a contract. Like, she's playing bigger gigs and getting more famous. Isn't she at least, like, complicit in some of that? 
Well, I, I will say this though: in a lot of the scenes, like she doesn't seem to have much presence, and that a lot of the scenes seem to be like about her. But mm-hmm. for being what I would consider the lead of this, she doesn't seem to have much agency. Which... Well, maybe you've hit on a problem with people writing a female character. I don't think it's because she's a female character. That's that's a really easy big hook to hang it on. Right. Well, I mean, and I, I mean, don't... she's our protagonist. You would think, except I... she's just kind of this like background character. Sure, and I, you know, I don't like. I also don't want to do a very boring liberal feminist reading of the film, but you know, maybe. Yes. She has been written like kind of passively because people assume that you know women would be more passive in these situations. I don't know, especially since where, where does the um, movie a lot of times. Say that? What do you mean? Like, where does the movie say that though? Well, the movie doesn't say it explicitly. These are these. It's something that um, when you know a lot of times when people. And it, I'm not just talking about female characters. Like, when people will write a character, they'll just write something based on, like, a particular image or stereotype that they have in their head. I mean, I'm just, like, I'm just kicking around an Grasping idea Grasping at straws, yeah. Like, I, well, but I don't understand um, what the issue is. I'm, I'm saying that she seems to be, like, a passenger in her own, um, you know, story. Okay, here. and like I don't disagree with that. I'm giving a re- one possible reason why that might be the case. Like I think yeah, it's possible that they accidentally wrote a fairly passive character when she should have been a more active character. And a lot of times, like you know, bad writing in movies is not always misogyny. Like it is in no way always misogyny, as much as a lot of liberal feminist feminist cultural writers want you to believe that. But, All right. Well, then, you know, then that's of... my that's my point. <laughs> like, she's not an an interesting character then, or she's a passive character that kind of fits with a lot of the movie, like taking a backseat to its own message. Well, I don't um I don't think that we're disagreeing about the character. Um, I'm not sure where the disagreement is coming from. I don't know. You can agree with me whenever you like. Um. Okay. Um, but I don't understand, like, I, I mean, I'm trying to understand, like, what you are saying. I'm saying that a lot of these, um, conclusions that you're drawing from the movie are largely unmotivated. Like, um, let, take the drummer leaving, for example. He just kind of, like, up and leaves at one point. And, like, yeah, we have the, the no, reason, the reason, no... the reason given is that he's bored or something like that. Yeah, like, we have no build-up to that. It's just a guy who makes a decision one day, be like, yeah, I'm out. Like, okay. And and you talk about you know, how sort of um, how the uh, bassist and the guitarist are both all about, you know, chasing like, you know, more success and more money. It's like we've met them from the beginning and they're clearly just, you know, mercenary session musicians. Like they're, you know, they had their own goals in it. Not that they amounted to anything by the end of it. Well, but what, I mean. Well, what do you make of the, the scene where they're playing... Uh keep away with Jonathan Price's character's heroine. I think that that shows them to be um, I think that it shows them to be inconsiderate kind of shallow people or at least I think that's how Yeah, and you the saw that from the intended. beginning. You, you saw know, that when they Kate auditioned. Kate is very upset. Yeah. You know, even though she's like stoned and partying too, she's like she's very upset about how they're treating Jonathan Price's character, but they they just laugh it off. And Yeah, but they were 
a lot they of were always that a lot way. of their a, uh, what is that what what difference does that make well it's it's so so what like you know you talk about or, or the movie talks about how um you know it's like oh she's sold out and they're trying to illustrate that through the movie but from the moment that we met these two characters you know they're playing um you know they're playing her music and you know they they play the song and then you know the guy just does like this you know little bass riff at the end where clearly like they've brought their egos with them as well so i mean they were kind of always jerks to begin with and that they continue to be jerks it's like okay like, um, nothing has really changed. Like, they're more successful versions of the people they were at the beginning of the movie. I don't understand what point that refutes. Like, I don't understand. I mean, like, are you making a point about, like, if you're making a point about these characters being relatively flat, I certainly agree. Okay, then that, yes, that's the point that I'm making. Um. Okay, but... So, well, how how does this square with um success changing any of them um because kate is still singing about the same topics she's able to reach a bigger audience and you know her records climb the chart she achieves a measure of success um well her bandmates are still assholes her um the one genuine guy in a small role is still a junkie but his life never really seems to change uh, the drummer gets bored and leaves one day. Um, all right. What? But you know, at, like at, what you're saying seems to imply that everybody at the at the end of the movie is perfectly happy, but instead, um, it leads to Kate's mental breakdown, and she's like a basket case in a mental hospital at the I'm end. I'm saying, like, where did where did that come from? Because because given that everything else hasn't really changed, I mean, if anything. She's more stressed because she's under more pressure because I'm sure that being a successful musician and you know trying to make it mm -hmm. in a creative industry is difficult, but well, that's not exceptional. Well, also, I mean, okay, like um, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get at the most basic surface level reading of the film. This is what I think that the movie was saying, and the way that um, Kate is presented leading up to a breakdown, like, her body language is extremely uncomfortable. She can't manage, like, a real smile. Um, you know, she's having, like, weird fever dreams about the tube. Like, she runs out of her own gig. Um, and she is also being forced, or being forcibly drugged. Like, there's a scene of them injecting her, and, like, she's she seems, like, very unhappy. So whether or not she should be unhappy, <laughs> you know, given her material success, she is unhappy, and she becomes insane. That, Mind you, that's the most surface-level, superficial reading of the film possible. I think that is what they intended with the movie. Great. Like, okay. I mean, she's still singing about the same stuff, and then, you know, eventually she has had enough, and she well, goes mental. I mean, there's also the the fact that, um, you know, you have a body of work, and usually what you do is you tour it around, and you sing a lot of your old material. So she is going to do her hits. Okay, good for her. Um, so it's, an artist singing a... the same songs isn't necessarily an indictment of their um 
I don't know how I would describe it, like their mental state or their creative output or whatever. Right. Well, if that's all you have to go on in the movie, how am I supposed to come to a different conclusion unless I want to bring my own opinion to it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, well what should we derive from the movie? That the movie is about uh, a musician who uh, gets put under a lot of stress as um, she achieves greater success. The end. I mean... Mm-hmm. Like, okay, like, it's it's not this, um, you know, like, is, like this uh, sort of through the looking glass, you know, kind of about face of her character. It isn't that she becomes, you know, disfigured and into like this, um, uh, you know, mockery of her former self. She's more of the person that she was to begin with. She was already you know, stressed and talking about, you know, social injustices. And then she continues to do so at the end. And then it, it finally breaks her. Like, okay, that's right. sad, but it isn't like, it isn't anything that wouldn't have happened anyway. I mean, if she, if she didn't achieve any success, how would her um, path have been different? Well, I think that what we're dealing with is kind of a, I mean... Keep in mind, this movie was made 40 years ago, and it was playing into, like, very, like, cliched ideas of uh, musicians selling out. There was there were some very firm beliefs about what constituted authenticity in music, and I'm talking about stuff that I've seen in the kind of the music writing culture of the time. Like, these are not ideas that I hold, but these are the ideas that were around at the time was that real authenticity was being punk, being DIY, like not being subject to the whims of a record company, doing your own thing, like not changing your lyrics, for example, from kick up the arse to punch in the nose, stuff like that. I think, and I think that it was because rock and roll was at the time still a very young a relatively young medium. It really only been around like 20 years or so. Like no, the, the idea that the Rolling Stones would still be playing huge concerts in their seventies just seemed absolutely ridiculous to people at the time. There was a notion that rock and roll wasn't something that adults did. It was like a youth medium and it was all about like youthful anger and not being a part of the establishment um, so I think that that is the viewpoint that is being sold by the movie. I think that Kate's uh, early DIY roots are presented as authentic and the product that she becomes is presented as inauthentic. Um, that's what I think that the movie is selling just based on what I've gotten out of like music writing at the time um, and right. ideas well of authenticity and lack of authenticity in music i mean you know there was a time when you know this movie was right at a time when um you know i mean synthesizers had started coming in in the 70s obviously you know analog synthesizers and then um along with new wave and like kind of like uh pop music in the 80s like synthesizers really came to the fore and people were very resistant to that um, you know, yeah, it was it's felt like, weird that a technophobe like her would use, like, would invoke synthesizers as much as she had. I mean, she's, um, you know, it's, 
he's using like electronic equipment. Yeah, like there's a um I mean, there's like you have the equipment that you need to make your music and then very little else, right? You know? Like like you can have a small synthesizer, but you know, you don't want a bunch of like slick production and stuff like that. I mean, like at the beginning she doesn't even want a producer. Like she very she very naively wants to do everything herself. And that kind of isn't really compatible with um, making a product for a record company, basically. All right. I mean, that's just what I think that the the movie itself is is saying. Yeah, yeah. It was. It's, it's, it's again. It's a it's a rock and roll movie from forty years ago. Right. It's pretty weak. Um, you know. I it's... honestly found myself getting kind of bored, like about halfway through, because I, and. You know, you could say it's because, like, yeah, I'd seen the movie before, but it's like, well, I know where the story is going. And, you know, even if I hadn't seen it before, I'm pretty sure that I would have been able to discern where it was going. Yeah, like, the social context is interesting, the music is interesting, the story in the movie, not so much. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of the performances are good, like, in spite of being um, a strangely passive character, I think Hazel O'Connor is very good. She's kind of like, you know, the only person for this part in a way, because in like kind of a a weird way, it's autobiographical because she, you know, the actress was also the, you know, writer and musician of the music. And she's also a musician in her own right. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like some, you know, cross media narrative, you know, resonance going on there. Um, the movie is you know, terribly exciting. But yeah, and it's, interestingly... It's significant. Like, the things around the movie are significant and interesting. The movie itself, less so. Well, what do you think are the, the more interesting things about the film? Because, like, I, I agree that the movie itself is pretty rote. Um, well, I'm, I think it's the stuff that we've covered already. It's, you know, Winter of Discontent. It's, you know, Thatcher era UK. Uh, you know, factory closing. You know, mass strikes. Um, you know, uh, gravediggers refusing to bury the dead, um, notions about, you know, inauthenticity, uh, you know, ideas about you know, selling out. There's, you know, racism. There's, you know, skinheads, latent fascism. A lot of the music uh, confronts those issues, and those are interesting topics to discuss. Um, and then the movie exists as a framework for those songs. I mean, you know, it's kind of a musical in that way in that, you know, you're using this is a way to get from song to song. I'm sure the album is, you know, more rewarding listening than the movie is viewing. That's kind of funny because the soundtrack album was extremely successful. And in spite of this being the thing that really broke Hazel O'Connor big, she made no money off of it because of a bad record contract. Yeah, again, it's sort of a, a documentary about a fictional band. <laughs> I mean, like it, and maybe that's why the movie is somewhat dull. It's because, you know, it's a it's such a common story that you, you almost wonder why bands still f fall for that kind of thing. Or, you know, anybody yeah. um, getting into any creative endeavor where you have to, you know, you're kind of beholden to like money people. It's like, mm -hmm. I, you know, you go into it wide eyed saying, like, yeah, oh, I there's mean, no way this relationship is going to be exploited. Oh, wait. Yeah, you know, learn from Nina Cherry. Like, you don't need no money, man. <laughs>
Did she um, have a producer? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was Eagle Eye Cherry. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> it would have been like 14 at the time. I don't know. Um, yeah, and, and there is the... Uh, Only 90s kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there is a point, too, where... I feel like Michael uh, Palin. What a terrible joke. <laughs> Uh, so getting back to this really being the manager's story rather than, um, you know, Hazel or Kate's, um, he, even the manager quits the band at one point because Kate's being seduced by this, you know, uh, uh, sleazy refined, um, uh, producer who knows karate and, you know, <laughs> I studied hard Wing man. Chun for 15 years and it was like, oh yeah. God, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, he's the more refined guy. I mean, they I I wasn't even paying close attention enough to know why they went up to see him anyway. They had to demo something, and I'm just like, well, okay, it's just another part of this, you know, uh, slog of uh, you know music career that they've got going on. And then he just like immediately gets his claws into Kate, like yeah, <laughs> like he. It's so, just like you could tell, like immediately he's like, yeah, I'm gonna fuck her. Yeah. So and she's Kate like, for, okay. Like, all her- <laughs> Yeah, for all her rabble rousing is very passive, like in, you know, her like her voice versus her character. Well, I do want to emphasize like and for whatever reason, like it doesn't have to be like, you know, latent sexism on the part of the writer or whatever. Um, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's possible that she is just a bit of a weakly written character. Yeah, I, I would believe that she's a weekly written character. I mean, given the rest of you know, what we see in this movie. But I mean, maybe like they put a lot of their, most of their energy into, you know, Danny, Phil Daniels character, because he does. They put most of their energy into the music and then they made a movie around it. Maybe this is just a thing that is common to movies where it's like, well, we want to make a product like we want to make a movie about. In fact, the movie started out as being about a male singer. And then they're like, yeah, let's make it about a chick singer. Ah, uh, man, male erasure, <laughs> just trying to sell product. And then um, they... So tra- tragic, really. And then they opted to, you know, they started auditioning um, female singers. They actually auditioned Toya Wilcox, who some of you might know, who's... Um, and it's very interesting that she that they went with Hazel O'Connor, but, um, you know, she credits some kind of like laws of attraction bullshit for the reason she said that before she went into the audition, she basically visualized what she wanted to happen. She was like, okay, I'll go in, I'll audition, and they'll love me, and they'll give me the main part. She was actually auditioning only for a small part in the movie, and she ended up getting the lead. She was like, I'm going to get the lead, and they're going to love my songs, and they're going to get Tony Visconti to produce the music. You know, Tony Visconti had worked with Bowie, who she admired a great deal. Well, guess what happened? She literally got everything she wanted. As Maria Bamford said, boom, manifested. Wow. I, you know, I hear uh, Arlie Ermey did the same thing when he was uh, uh, auditioning as the uh, drill instructor consultant on Full Metal Jacket. He's like, they are going to love me. They are going to appreciate me and give me a lead role in this film. And I'm going to bank an entire acting career off of this one performance. I was hoping that we would get a, and I would think it would go a little something like this moment from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I know I can't, I can't keep it up for, you know, uh, hours on end the way Arlie Ermey said, whoa, phrasing. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) He was a great character actor, and man, could he fuck. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that guy was, uh, yeah, a a jackhammer. Um, How would I know that? Uh, So... (laughs) Yeah, I don't so know, Tim. I, do you want to do a special episode about Arlie or? <laughs> we could, except for I'm sure that like there are already like dozens of uh, other like amateur uh, film uh, critics have you know YouTube channels dedicated to uh, Arlie or me as it is. If um, I had fifty bucks, I would bet it right now that if we typed in the Arlie Army into iTunes, we would come up with a podcast based on his body of work. Right? Yeah, yeah. you could. Right? He's he's a he's a known quantity. The sort of thing that um, can easily be glossed over uh, by us because so many other podcasts have already. Uh, try that familiar territory. And if you um, want a very specific podcast about a very specific actor, why not try the show Spall Talk, a show which I have uh, guested what's, on. What's the uh, what's the uh, lead in uh, to that? Like, what's what's the what's the pitch for that? It's basically about the work of the actor Timothy Spall. Well, you know Timothy Spall and Arlie Ermey like, you know, <laughs> together already. at last. Together at last. Um, like peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so hungry. Um, so <laughs> this so, episode so sucks, Dick. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it does. Uh, so, and not to mention, like, I think I'm, I'm, my audio is peaking, especially when I did the Arlie Ermy thing. But uh, yeah. So, so she has her big show. Uh, we see one song of it because you know I Hazel wrote an album's worth of music for this. Which you know, fair point. That's you know, no no minor feat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, then she goes. She has a psychotic break. They film a um, like a fever dream back on the subway, which is where she started. More successful, but not otherwise particularly changed from her experience. Um, and then uh, I mean, apart uh, from being insane. Well, well, yeah. Then she put in a mental hospital. And I remember when, when you and I watched it um, the first time, uh, Danny goes to visit her and he brings her a little, uh, you know, a little synthesizer keyboard, I guess, to get her to make music again. But she's just like catatonic. Yeah, she seems um, like she's on Thorazine. It's actually really disturbing. <laughs> yeah, so she's just wrecked. And, you know, Danny, you know, in gratitude, brings her a keyboard um, and then he leaves. And like he, then the last shot is him, like you know, walking across the lawn, just be like, "Well, it sucks to be her. I got to go live my life." Yeah, and I feel that it was intended to be a kind of hopeful ending. She's back with Danny, or at least he's looking after her. She has a way to make music again. But yeah, but that the way is that... absolutely not what I got out of it. Yeah, because when, just to hear you describe it now, it sounds terrible. And that's the way it came off. It's just like, oh, well, I got to go ruin someone else's life now. I'm Danny. Bye. <laughs> and I really have to make it clear that I don't think that that was the filmmaker's intent. I think that they that they intended a kind of hopeful ending. Yeah. But... I guess a hopeful ending for Danny. Like, I mean, I'm sure he still gets a piece of, you know, like the the album sales from Breaking Glass. Well, he's like, hey, I, mean, I, it, I stuck my dick Kate in the crazy and I got away clean. Look at me. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, in that way, you know, that is a hopeful 
message of triumph. I mean, to be able to achieve that, you know, every guy's dream to, to be able to fucking just unentangle yourself from that fucking hot mess. You could do like an alternate reading of the movie with Danny as kind of a monster because he does, in spite of being kind of the nominal protagonist and like sympathetic, he does come across as very angry and controlling a lot of the time. Um, yeah, and who wants that in a manager? Well, that's the thing, is that he is effective because of his assertiveness. We see him striking out a lot, like, for example, at the beginning when he tries to blag his way into the industry party. But Yeah, we see that a lot. But, you know, like, what's the... Is, it, is that like a, a Pua thing where it's like, you know, like, you know, keep trying, and even if you strike out 50 times, like, you know, you get that one success or whatever and maybe he wasn't doing the law of attraction right <laughs> apparently not but yeah um he is very assertive um which ser certainly serves him as a manager and being like kind of an angry psychopath has served a hell of a lot of music managers right, um yeah. but when he sees kate kind of slipping out of his grasp he does become very angry and controlling and kind of in a way that kind of cuts off his nose to spite his face, like makes this very loud exit from the band because he sees himself being displaced. And then at the end of the movie, um, he goes in very brightly and happily, you know, kisses his catatonic girlfriend says, Oh, here's a synthesizer for you to play with. And then walks away whistling. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which again yeah, what a, don't think what that a, was the intent of the filmmakers but that is what you could get out of it right yeah yeah what a what a monster to stand in the way of the uh like you know sleazy upper class music producer getting his hooks into kate well yeah that's what i'm saying like again it's not like intended and you know, yeah, that's why I said yeah, like that's a, a wild reading but yeah yeah it's a real galaxy brain take i mean you know but that's that's Half the fun of movies is, you know, getting real crazy is, is about making it. Yeah, have I got the movie for you? It's called uh, Room 237. <laughs> because, it's a documentary about things that are factual. Because really what I think is that the movie is actually very simplistic. John Finch's evil producer character is just that. He's evil. He's exploitive. Uh, Danny is presented as, even though he's a little bit extra, he obviously really cares about Kate. He's coming back to visit her in the mental institution. He's bringing her an instrument, which may help her find her voice after she gets off the lithium or whatever the fuck they're it's, injecting in her. It seems like music was the problem the whole time. Like, have you not seen where this leads? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> like, hey, can you maybe squeeze out another album for us, please? Well, to be fair, I mean, like, I... she won't she won't have a producer in the, the mental hospital. Right, that's true. I mean, you know, they'll find a way to work it out. But even still, it's kind of like Danny going, hey, could you please maybe write us another album? They're incredibly popular. Well, is that, uh, it, is that what happened at the end? Or is it him, like because yeah it's ambiguous no but, like, it, no, but it... you no, but you can take it that way <laughs> right 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 I mean, right right. oh you're seeing, talking about seeing... my my galaxy brain reading of the film <laughs> yeah yeah seeing like like given everything that's been let led up to this i mean in like practical terms if if kate is just a commodity you could be like hey you want to write us another album from the mental hospital <laughs> boy they were really they really thought that they were writing an indictment 
of the industry, but it just came out sideways. Yeah, yeah, it really didn't. Yeah, it it didn't land. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's funny. Yeah, but um, uh, not all uh, not all is lost because I thought you movie, were gonna say not all record producers. Right. <laughs> no, I am gonna say that you know, despite you know a lot of the movies, you know, narrative shortcomings. Um, one of the great things about watching this is that we do. We did get uh, the best joke ever told out of out of watching this. <laughs> do you, Which do you, is, do you want to frame yeah. that up for the audience? Because yeah, like we're yeah. literally still laughing about it ten years later or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah. you can stream this. It is available for rent on several platforms, including YouTube. So you can yeah. do that. Um, yeah. So we were, we got we were. <laughs> we were <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Do you want to tell yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. So, so as we've established, Kate is you know she's lower class. Um, she's very punk, even if she describes her music as new wave. She's very DIY, very um, boorish lower lower class um, British person. And so she meets the the sleazy producer, and um, and uh, yeah, they're there to give a demo, and the the producer's like, oh, so Kate, I uh, understand you've written something new. <laughs> And what does Tim blurt out? Yeah, me name. (laughs) (laughs) Which we literally still say to each other years later. Watching the movie again, and it's like, oh shit, it's that part. <laughs> I don't know why it tickles me so. <laughs> yeah, me name. <laughs> yeah, me name. <laughs> this is. Man, this is this is the worst episode we've done since we first started. <laughs> this, is, this has been happy. <laughs> I can't understand. Give us zwei peanuts. Walking down distress. <laughs> okay, do I understand you for something for us? You. Oh my god! If you, if you can find the soundtrack, uh, I can do that. I don't know. Mm-hmm.